You're listening to Red Leg Nation Radio, the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Red Leg Nation Radio podcast. I'm your host, Chad Dotson. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks for downloading us once again. Got a pretty special, at least as far as I'm concerned, episode of the podcast today. Sports Illustrated's Joe Posnanski, former writer for the Cincinnati Post, as many of you may recall, will be joining us uh, in just a moment. I spoke to Joe earlier today, and uh, we discussed his new book. You've all already heard of it, I'm sure, The Machine. A hot team, a legendary season, and a heart-stopping World Series. The story of the 1975 Cincinnati Reds. It's marching its way up the bestseller lists. Uh, I read it in no time after receiving it. Just a, the definitive account of what I know is a subject that's near and dear to the hearts of everyone that's uh, listening to this podcast now, and that's that big red machine. Without further ado, further ado let's go ahead and jump into uh, my conversation with Joe Poznanski. On the line with us here today is Joe Poznanski. For those of you who may not be familiar with Joe, and you should be very familiar with him if you read RedLegNation.com on a regular basis, uh, Joe's the senior writer, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He uh, was a sports columnist, Kansas City Star, from 96 to 2009. Many of you may, uh, of our listeners here may remember Joe as a sports columnist for the Cincinnati Post prior to that. Uh, he's the author of three books. One of those is The Soul of Baseball. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, but of course the reason that he's here is that he just released a, his latest book, The Machine, and uh, about obviously the Big Red Machine. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, the full title of the book is The Machine, A Hot Team, A Legendary Season, and A Heart-Stopping World Series, The Story of the 1975 Cincinnati Reds. A lot of colons in there. That's the longest subtitle I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a little longer than I really wanted, but uh, you know, one of the things that you find out when you write a book is you don't really have a lot of control over a lot of things. You you basically can control what you can, and uh, uh, they wanted to get a lot into that subtitle. Well, evidently, but it does describe uh, the book very well. Um, I know we have several editors at Red League Nation who all pre-ordered the book and uh, have all, all plowed through it pretty quickly, and it's a great read. We'll get into it a little bit. Um, I know you talk about this in the afterword of the book, but you're a Cleveland guy, right? I am. I am indeed. What made you want to write about the 1975 Reds? Well, uh, I was I was eight years old in 1975. It was the year I really fell in love with baseball. When I uh, pretty vividly remember uh, just about everything about that year. You know, it seemed like that was the year that uh, yeah, I started knowing the players' names and I collected baseball cards and and uh, watch the games on TV, listen to them on the radio. So I mean, it was really the year I fell in love with baseball, and obviously that Reds team was, was the dominant force at the time. And, and uh, you know, and wanting to write about that time, wanting to write about, uh, uh, you know, baseball when I was young, uh, you know, they just seemed like, the, they seemed like a really good story. And the more I researched them, the more I talked to people about them, the more I started talking to people on that team, uh, the more I loved that team where I love that story and and uh, you know it was just it was just a lot of fun it really was a fun project well no doubt and of course you know those of, the, of us that are Reds fans a uh, little it's a subject that's near and dear to our heart so certainly there's a lot of people that's appreciative of you having written this book but you mentioned a moment ago about uh, sort of writing about that time and, and you really clearly made a conscious effort to discuss the Reds 
within the context of you know the mid seventies and things that were going on about that. What you know, uh, why why'd you decide to do that? I thought it was an interesting way to to put the Reds into context. Well, thanks. I mean, and that was that was really what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't want to. Obviously, not a history book. I mean, I didn't want to do too much of that, but I thought it was fun to tell some of the stories of the time and 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 really try to <clears throat> try to put them in their place and 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 hopefully take people back a little bit. And uh, you know, I mean, I, there are some stories in there that you know for the younger people might not even know, but I think for people my age, older than me, uh, even a little bit younger than me, uh, you know, that was. That was a kind of a, a, an interesting time. I mean, it, it was the year that the, some of the Jaws came out, and, and it was really kind of started the whole summer blockbuster. Uh, Gerald Ford was president. Watergate had just ended. Vietnam War uh, had just ended, and and so it's a very interesting time. And and I thought it would just be a lot of fun to to kind of incorporate that in without without taking too much away from the story. I mean, it's it's obviously uh, the story of the '75 Reds, but without taking away uh, too much from that story, I think it was. Uh, uh, a fun way to do it. Well, I, I think I don't think you did take away from the story. Clearly, the story is front and center. But it was interesting to sort of take a peek. I thought at this great baseball team, you know, artists in their own right. Uh, you know, while so many different things were happening around them, and it did place into context. But I, I should have known there'd be some Springsteen in there. Well, yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> that is, uh, uh, I will admit, uh, specifically for for me. I mean, you know, it's it's. it's I had to put there's you know seventy five was the year Born to Run uh, came out it was the year he worked on it and and I think it's the greatest rock and roll album ever so uh, so yeah I, I definitely took a page uh, I figured of all the pages I had in the book I got to give myself a page so I wrote a little bit about uh, Springsteen and Born to Run absolutely got to do some of it for yourself um, yeah, we've talked about greatness and what made this team great and um, one thing I wanted to go ahead and, and ask you uh, what your when you did your research, how this uh, came to you? Because, you know, I don't know that we need to look any further than that three-week stretch in August. Uh, has there ever been a team? They were just amazing at that time. Considering they'd already locked up the division, they were really just playing for themselves and history. Was that, how amazing uh, did that surprise you? I guess uh, it did. It really, really did. You know, I mean, obviously, you start a book like this, and you know some of the basics. You know that that team got off to a, a bad start. Um, was was struggling in the late May. Started really playing well. Kind of uh, had this you know remarkable June, July, uh, and, and August pulled away from the division and so on. Uh, but yet, as I was doing it, you, you you sort of find ways to split the book up in, into sections. And there was this three week section in in August when you know the division is wrapped up. They're they're really you're exactly right. They're only playing for themselves at this point. I mean, obviously they want to they want to put things away, but you know they're really playing uh, to be great, and you know they have a three-week stretch. They only lost twice. One of those they, they basically gave away. The other one was this this incredible, incredible game, um, and and the other game I mean they just were absolutely dominant. The starters didn't lose a single game during those three weeks, and and uh, you know they you know hit and stole bases and did all the things they did. It was it was sort of all that the machine is sort of wrapped up into a three-week. Uh, into a three-week span, so that was really interesting and fun to to go through that game by game, and 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 really, I think you know that's sort of in, in some ways for me, it's the it's the crescendo of the book. You know, you got you, you got the rough start, you, you see them sort of climbing up, uh, then they hit this three-week peak where they're just absolutely at the very top of the game. Uh, then they finish out the year, win the playoff series against Pittsburgh, and then of course you have the big finish with uh, with the Great World Series against Boston. So, so that was sort of how the arc of the book was able to go for me. 
Absolutely. And of course, everybody knows about that uh, World Series and the postseason, uh, one of the greatest uh, series of all time. But I, I think the way you put that is, is correct. I think that that three week stretch really sort of encapsulated why this team was not just great, but a special team, something beyond uh, just a great baseball team. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and look, all the great teams have their, these stretches where they just play incredible baseball. Uh, but I would say that, that it would be hard for me to imagine that, that there's ever been a team that was better than that Reds team during that stretch, you know, when everything was clicking and everybody was playing together and everything was going and the pitching was, was great and they were scoring runs and doing, you know, they were coming back, they were, they were blowing people out, they were doing whatever, you know, was necessary to win and, and, uh, yeah, you know, that's there's something really beautiful about that, and and yeah, it's it's hard. I think in a book, it's it's hard in in it's hard in every form. I mean, it's hard on TV, it's hard in on the radio, it's hard in in many ways to capture greatness. You know, to capture what it is that makes something uh, you know really unique and special. Uh, but I thought that three week stretch was kind of a cool way to 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 look at that. Absolutely. Uh, and that brings to mind a question. Can you imagine any other team in history being able to beat you as many ways as that big red machine team could? You know, that's, that to me is, it, it, it's impossible. It really is to say, okay, what's the best team ever? I mean, you know, how are you going to compare the 75 reds, uh, you know, 75, 76 reds, I like to put them sure. together, uh, with the 27 Yankees or the, or the Boys of Summer Dodgers or even that Oakland A's team that beat them in 72, you know, that, that, that won three World Series or the late 90s Yankees or the Casey Stengel Yankees or whatever. How do you really, uh, you know, say, well, okay, which of these teams is the, the greatest? To me, I think you have to define what you mean. And, and for me, the fact that that team was great in every aspect of the game, and I'm talking about the, the eight guys on the field, the fact that they, that they hit with power, that they stole bases, that they got on base, that they hit doubles and triples, that they you know, led the league in home runs, 76. Um, the fact they played great defense, I mean legendary, you know, gold glove defense with, with all four guys up the middle and, and not just regular gold glove defense. I mean, I think Johnny Bench might be the best defensive catcher ever and Joe Morgan, you know, one of the all-time greats. Dave Concepcion probably deserves uh, more credit for how good he was defensively. And sure. Geronimo, you know, Geronimo winning the four straight gold gloves. I mean, that's... That's a remarkable team. There's there's nobody there's no other team like that. I mean that's that's not to say that if they played the 27 Yankees that Gehrig and Ruth wouldn't just take over. But one to eight, the ways that that team could beat you, I don't think anybody can come close to that. I agree, and uh, that brings to mind something that you sort of touched on a good bit during the book was that yes, one to eight they could beat you. But you know what? This pitching staff, although they felt underappreciated and probably still do to this day. Not a bad pitching staff, and, and there's no Hall of Famers there, but there were a couple of guys uh, in Don Gullett and Gary Nolan who, frankly, were Hall of Fame top talents. Uh, and so um, what about the pitching of that team? It was pretty good, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and what I love about that 75 pitching staff is that it was a staff. I mean, it was truly in the way that we view a staff today. I mean, you know, you look at a pitching staff today, you say, okay, who has the best pitching staff? You don't just look at the starters. You look at, okay, well, you know, who's getting outs in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning? Who's your closer? Who's you know who, who you bringing out on the on the fourth and fifth day? I mean, it's not you know I think in the in the in the seventies and sixties for sure in the seventies uh, and certainly going back 
when you said, okay, who has the best star, you know, who has the best pitching staff, you were talking about who had the best star pitchers. I mean, you, you, you're talking about Bob Gibson, you're talking about Tom Seaver, you're talking about Steve Carlton or, or Juan Marichal or whatever. You're talking about right. you know, who is the greatest pitchers. But that 75 Reds team had a great staff from beginning to end. You know, they had uh, a tremendous bullpen that Sparky obviously used uh, to, to, to his great advantage. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, Don Gullett, when he was healthy, Don Gullett was as good as anybody. I mean, Don Gullett probably, you know, stays healthy. I think he might win the Cy Young in 75. Uh, Gary Nolan was a, just a dominant, dominant uh, young pitcher before he got hurt, and he came back and was still very effective. I mean, it was a, it was a good, good pitching staff in 1975, even if they didn't have the stars. Right, yeah, I think they're underappreciated, uh, certainly, because there's so much focus on that, uh, you know, one through eight in, in the order, because that's a historically historically great group um just to shift a little bit if there's one thing about that team and the the 75 76 res those mid 70s big red machine that makes them such an interesting subject for a book to me uh, besides the fact that they were a you know great baseball team is that there were so many varied and interesting personalities on that club and i thought you did a good job of sort of getting into the mind of some of those personalities um with with the reds at that time one of which, of course, is Sparky Anderson, who we st- started to get into there just a second ago when we were talking about that pitching staff. Uh, now, you didn't get to, get to interview Sparky, did you? I, I've interviewed Sparky before, but I did not get the specific interview for this book now. Right. Uh, which is, you know, I, I, it's, it's a regret. I mean, and, 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 you know, as I was writing the book, I, you know, I, we tried. He was just not doing well. His right. health was not good, and, and so it just didn't work out. Uh, but that said, there, there's no shortage of, of Sparky Anderson information out there. I mean, he's written three books and, and uh, been interviewed countless times. I've interviewed him a few times. So it, it's, it's not like I was missing anything, I, didn't, I don't think. And he was, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what the biggest surprise was uh, when writing this book. In a lot of ways, it was him because obviously we all know Sparky Anderson. We all know how he was, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. And he's certainly not an underappreciated uh, manager and by any stretch, but uh, he was really good. I mean, he was better in a lot of ways, I think, than than I expected, and not just in the way he handled the, the pitching staff, which which I mentioned, you know, being really ahead of his time when it came to using the bullpen, but the way he balanced all of those egos and 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 found ways to get not only uh, you know real big performances out of the great players who obviously loved him, Pete and. Johnny and Joe, those guys loved Sparky and loved playing for him, Tony Perez as well. Um, but getting tremendous performances out of guys that didn't necessarily like him. I mean, you know, some of the lesser uh, players that weren't the big stars, the like Ken Griffey's and George Foster and, and Dave Concepcion and those guys, um, they, they weren't that crazy about Sparky necessarily at the time, but still they played great for him. And uh, he just had a, a tremendous ability, I think, to, to bring the most out of, out of players and uh, and, and I think – I don't know that there is a big red machine. I, I think if there's a different manager, uh, I think that team has a very, very different uh, uh, personality and is driven in a very different way. I think Sparky really you know, has his fingerprints all over that team. Yeah, and that was a, certainly a focus of the book. And I, I brought up the fact that you can interview him not to sort of be critical of that because – Oh, no. Really, the, what struck me and a couple of the other editors that we were talking about the book uh, at Red Lake Nation is that you got so far inside his head and really I thought that was a new angle to look at the Big Red Machine about how much Sparky Anderson's fingerprints were on everything that went on from uh, you know Johnny Bench and Pete Rose down to Ed Armbrister and the, you know, everyone in that team and how he managed everything and 
um, it it worked very very well. And did that was that sort of natural that he would become sort of the focus of the book uh, in in some ways? It, it really wasn't. I mean, it, and and I really appreciate you saying that. I I think. Um, you know, the, the book, I, I wanted the book to come out as naturally as possible. I mean, I, when, when I started doing it, I really had in my mind, obviously Pete Rose was a big player in that. Joe Morgan, I think, was the best player in baseball at the time, uh, and one of the best players of all time. And, of course, Johnny Bench is, you know, maybe the greatest catcher ever. So I knew those guys were going to play a very big role in the book, just in the way, you know, obviously, and Tony Perez as well. Um, but I honestly did not have an idea for what I was going to do with Sparky, other than I knew – you know, he was going to be there, and, and, you know, he's the man. But, but I mean, I, I really came into this thing thinking, well, you know, he was sure he was Captain Hook, and he was, you know, he, we all know that he did, you know, he was, he was good. But, I mean, how hard really was it to manage a team with that many great players on it? And, and the more I researched and the more I read, you know, about him and the more I went back into my own notes about him, um, he just started playing a bigger and bigger and bigger role. I mean, he's such a great character. He's such a full character. And, and, I, and like I say, I mean, I'm really of the opinion that he, he was a bigger part of that team than I think anybody's given him credit for in the past or, or most people give him credit for in the past. He was, he was really, really, to me, a critical component in, in creating the Big Red Machine. I'm a huge fan of uh, Sparky Anderson, have been for a long time, but reading this book, I gained a much deeper appreciation of you know what what he did and and how integral he was on that team. Um, talk about some more. I want to talk about some more of the personalities on that team. Of course, uh, you know I'll tell you what. One of the Chris, one of our uh, editors at Redding Nation, made this comment when we were one of the many times we've discussed the book uh, at the website. He said, "Wow, players were wittier back then. There were probably 50, 50 quotes in the book that would be funnier and more trenchant than anything you hear from an athlete today." Um, and who knew Pete Rose was so witty? Uh, what do you think? It's great. No, I, I, I'm laughing because it's so true, and it's exactly, precisely the the feeling I had uh, going back and reading just you know reading game after game after game story uh, was how great the quotes were. I mean, these guys were you know now Pete Rose. To be fair, I mean he he basically admits this. He he used to sit in the dugout and think up. I mean, that was one thing he would do. He'd be, right. He would be in there in between innings, and he'd be sitting there thinking, okay, what am I going to say to the press afterward? And he would, he'd come up with stuff, which is, which is awesome, if you, if you really think about it. I mean, whatever anybody might think about Pete Rose, just to think that this guy was doing that. And his, his quotes were very funny, and, and, uh, and he was, was funny. And Joe Morgan, of course, um, you know, is, is a very, very, very smart guy and, sure. and uh, his quotes were, were very uh, were good and Johnny was you know was a smart guy and, and so uh, so yeah the quotes were extremely witty I think and and, and funny and and it was one of those things that uh, you know I think athletes back then just felt more free to, to say what's on their mind I mean I think you know baseball players today are still very funny they're just not funny on the record you know they're 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 funny when they're among you know people that they that they're comfortable around and and that used to be the press i mean i think that that those guys they didn't always like the the media by any stretch but you know the, the newspaper guys were the ones that they talked to those guys were there every day they talked to them every day and and I think they were comfortable enough to, to let themselves be. And, and I do think that, that baseball players, you know, maybe more than any other sport, just are naturally kind of funny just because, you know, it's a daily game. You're out there all the time. And, 
and there's so much dead time. I just think that you, you think kind of silly, kind of goofy thoughts. I mean, it's, it, it wasn't just the Reds. I mean, Bill Lee was probably sure. you know, one of the funniest guys ever and, of course, played in, in that 75 World Series. So, so I do think that that was part of the time. Yeah, I, I can't imagine any uh, athlete today, and you'd know because you've interviewed plenty of them, uh, that you know, prided them, would pride themselves on being a good interview like some of these guys did back then. And it makes for some great anecdotes in the book. It really does. I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, it's it's just different now. It's just the the idea. I think that in 1975, your biggest stars were Pete Rose and Reggie Jackson and Johnny Bench, and and these guys. They wanted to be on TV. They wanted to be. Those guys were all. They were all on, in commercials. They were announcers. You know. And you look at the biggest stars today, and that's not to knock them, but I mean, Derek Jeter isn't really interested in entertaining you, or you know, Albert Pujols is not. I mean, they're they're. The less they say, the better they feel, and and it's it's part of the game. It's part of what uh, you know what I think we've created probably in the media, but uh, but we've lost a little something there. I, I I do think that some of sort of these guys, if you say something now, I mean there were so many quotes, and there there are a lot of them are in the book. If somebody said him now, you know, I remember the Mike Marshall quote about him calling the the uh, the Reds said it was like facing a high school lineup. Well, today right. that's that's leading Sports Center and. And, you know, there's just so much more at risk now if, if you say something like that. But back then, you know, you could say it and you'd, you'd get a little a little uh, fallback, but mostly people would just kind of laugh about it. Right, yeah, D- different world. Um, Johnny Bench, you know, he was my favorite player growing up. Um, I wore number five, played catcher in Little League, and wasn't quite as good as Johnny Bench, almost, not quite. Um, <laughs> sure. So, and this may be an unfair question, but did you learn anything about Johnny Bench that you didn't know before when you were researching this book? Well, yeah. I mean, of course I did. I, I mean, I think the thing, it's not, his, his, to me, learning about him was not necessarily as eye-opening as maybe learning about Sparky or, or, or some of these other guys. Um, but I, what, what fascinates me about him is, the, is that he just laid out his life. I mean, he truly laid it out uh, from the time he was a very uh, young guy that he was like, this is what he was going to do. He was going to be in the big leagues. He was going to become a major league star. He was going to uh, uh, become the most famous baseball player in the world. He was going to, you know, marry the, the model. He was going to do, uh, you know, be uh, famous on TV. He was going to do all of these things, and then he went out and did it. I mean, you know, and part of it is, of course, uh, he, was a, he was a tremendous talent, uh, certainly. I mean, you know, but most of it is just hard work and, and, and dedication to, to, you know, and belief, I think, in himself. Um, he he made himself into this just remarkable, remarkable player, and in a lot of ways, '75 was sort of a, uh, a I'm not going to say it was a sad year for him. I mean, it was sad, you know, because he had the the marriage that that really didn't last very long, and he was hurt for most of the year. But I, I think it was sort of his last uh, last great great year, maybe. You know, I mean, he was still a very, very, very good baseball player after 1975. Uh, still would have some. Some some great moments, of course, was you know incredible in the '76 World Series and all that. Um, but really, up to 1975, he was the best the best player. I mean, he was just he was just extraordinary, and he was never quite as good again. And I think I think '75 is uh, is is a lot for for a lot of reasons. I think it was kind of a watershed year for him. And in some ways, I think there's a little bit of sadness in that. You know that that he was not. He wasn't the player again that he was that he was in you know 1970 or 72 or, or you know when he was just when he was just basically uh, everybody just couldn't believe how good he was. Yeah, you know the 
the relationship between Bench and, and Rose to sh- shift just a little bit. It's been well documented, a rivalry, relationship, whatever. But I don't know if I ever considered it uh, in the way you described it in, in the book, by which I mean Pete was sort of the local hero. Johnny was the national hero, and they both won what the other had. And, and 1975 was right at the, the, the height of that, wasn't it? It really was. It, you know, and, and there's no question. I mean, at the time, when whenever newspaper people came to town from around the country – um, they were doing something on the big red machine. They would do those two guys. That was that was pretty much it. Even though Joe Morgan was probably the best player, uh, even though Tony Perez was probably the guy viewed as the leader inside that clubhouse, um, the story inevitably was Johnny and Pete, Johnny and Pete, Johnny and Pete, and and you know so the, so a rivalry built up. Uh, I think they're very very different people anyway. So, I mean they they didn't they weren't the kind of people that were going to necessarily uh, have a great time together or hang out together. Um, and, and they played the game very differently. They just had very different ideas about things. So, so uh, you know, rivalry was kind of natural, and I think that, that there was certainly this, uh, uh, you know, jealousies and, and all of the things that are sort of human, I, I suppose. But by the same token, I think one of the things that's very clear is they both realized how much they needed each other. I mean, in order to make the big machine, oh, Johnny Dench had to be great, and Pete Rose had to be great, and, and even though – you know, over the years, I, I suppose they've said uh, some things about each other that, uh, you know, not necessarily complimentary. Um, both of them will always say, hey, that guy was a great player. You know, I mean, Johnny will talk about how P. Rose was a great player. Pete will talk about Johnny was a great player. And they know that the reason that they got to play uh, on, you know, maybe the greatest team ever was, was in large part because the other guy was so good. And, and, and so it's kind of an interesting relationship to me. Very, very interesting. Um, now, again, I'm skipping around a little bit. There's several things I want to touch on because there's so much about this book that uh, our listeners, Reds fans, are going to really appreciate. And one of those is the way you treated Joe Morgan and Pete Rose. We're going to get into Joe Morgan first, though. You know, lately, Joe's been the subject of quite a bit of scorn uh, for some of the crazy things he's said. And, and I think that Reds fans are really going to appreciate the fact that you did a, a good job of I don't know, maybe the words rehabilitating him by reminding everybody that Morgan was, in many ways, close to being the perfect ball player and as good as anybody around at that time. I mean, he was unreal. Unreal. Uh, you know, and it's, 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 it's kind of funny and, and kind of sad at the same time. Uh, there's, you know, so much has you know, been written about Joe Morgan in the last few years and, and the Fire Joe Morgan uh, uh, website, which, you know, that I, I – Good friends, pretty good friends with with uh, uh, the guy who who wrote that or who was the one of the lead writers for that, and it was a very very funny site and it made a lot of great points. But what you forget is that they're not, you know, the the group of us that are old enough to really remember Joe Morgan as a player. I mean, it's it's getting smaller, and 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 that group is not necessarily the most uh, internet savvy group. So a lot of the people who are reading all of this internet stuff might be 18 or 22 or 30 or 36 or whatever, and and they might not have really much memory of all of a guy that, that was one of the greatest players in baseball history. I mean, 1975 and 76, you have Joe Morgan, uh, you know, who is hitting three, you know, 320, who's, you know, walking 100 times, who's stealing bases, nobody can throw him out, he's hitting with power, he's winning gold gloves at second base. Uh, he's, he is absolutely as perfect a baseball player. It's, it's just like you said, he's, he's, he's the perfect player. And he's beating you with his mind. He's beating you with his with his with his legs. He's beating you with his bat. He's beating you with his glove. He's just he's just a guy that is uh, absolutely extraordinary. And 
you know, a lot of people just don't know that. Or if they know it, they, you know, they, they've only heard it through the filter of, you know, Joe Morgan telling stories about the old days. And so, so I think that's, you know, that's important. I mean, I think that the, the guy that, that, is, that is up there talking, uh, you know, when he's talking in the booth is, is not just an announcer. I mean, he's, he is truly one of the great players in baseball history. And, you know, so, some of the things he says are, you know, I find to be kind of silly. But some of the stuff he says, I think only a player who has been as good as him uh, can fully understand. So, so I think it's uh, you know I think it's a combination of things with, when when it comes to when, you know when it comes to anybody, but certainly when it comes to Joe Morgan. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it's it's good now that uh, maybe he'll get a some of these younger guys. There are a lot of young guys uh, at our website, you know, that are talking about uh, reading this book. I really hope that it gets a and of course it. I guess you'll t- you can talk about what the New York Times is saying about it uh, so far. I saw it's uh, moving its way up there, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. That's pretty exciting, no doubt. But I hope a lot of people can see, get to see the Joe Morgan that uh, people saw in '75 because well, um, just incredible. Yeah, and you know, and, and it's not even something that's that difficult. I mean, if if if, if somebody hears about this and just decides they're going to go to Baseball Reference or one of the baseball sites and look up Joe Morgan's numbers, they'll they'll see it. I mean, they'll just right. be so blown away by you know, you, you see how many guys you can go back in baseball history and 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 find who who you know hit 20 homers and hit 20 and walked 100 times and you know scored runs and stole 60 bases and and won Gold Gloves. I mean, it's it's. It's a small list. I mean, Joe Morgan is pretty much up there alone. And, and uh, you know, a, a few years ago, Bill James, who, uh, you know, of course, the, the, the baseball writer, uh, named Joe Morgan the best for second baseman ever. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he ranked the top 100 players at each position. Right. And he ranked Joe Morgan as the best second baseman ever. And, and I think a lot of people just were shocked. But if, if you look at all the things Joe Morgan did, there, there hasn't been anybody better than Joe Morgan in his prime. Yeah, I agree. You you treated Pete Rose, you know, sort of in a similar similar fashion, uh, as you put it uh, in the book. "Quote: It was a chance to resurrect a little bit of that Pete Rose that, I, as I remembered him from 1975. Uh, you know, he's had all the stuff that's gone on since then, and that's all anybody uh, talks about with Pete Rose now. But at that time, he really was a force of nature, wasn't he? He really was, and and in, in many ways, I mean, he that, that was that was something that was conscious. I mean, when it came to Joe Morgan. I mean, I'm writing about 1975, so it's going to be natural uh, that I'm going to write about how great Joe Morgan was because he was great. I mean, like I said, I think he was the best player in baseball at the time. Um, but with Pete Rose, there was a, a conscious effort there. I, I think I think that the conversation with, with Pete Rose has become so stale, and and you know, it's 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 should he go into the Hall of Fame after what he did, and it's it's about the gambling, and 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 Pete brought it on himself. I I, I don't. I'm not here to defend Pete Rose, but I also believe that if we're going to talk about Pete Rose, we need to talk about the kind of player he really was. And 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 he wasn't just a great baseball player. Uh, he was he was a force of nature, like you say. He was a great teammate. He was he played every day, uh, played very very hard every day. Never took a day off. Never took a bat off. Ran hard to first base on walks. And you know, and 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 people have spent a lot of time trying to get inside his head. Well, what was P. Rose really trying to accomplish? Why was he? Well, I, I, motivation is not, you know, we, we can guess at motivation, but the, the, the bottom line of it is uh, he, was, he was an utterly and completely unique player. There wasn't anybody like him even then, even at that time, certainly nobody like him now. Um, 
And and if you're going to talk about Pete Rose, then, then that needs to be, to me, part of what we're talking about because that's for for a very very long time, for much longer than than we know of Pete Rose, the manager, Pete Rose, the gambling you know guy, and all of that. For a much longer period of time, he was Pete Rose, the guy who played baseball the way it should be played, and 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 I think that should be a big part of the conversation whenever we talk about Pete Rose. Yeah, absolutely. We write at RedLegNation.com and discuss the Reds every day, uh, and we have we describe it as Pete Rose fatigue. Sometimes, uh, you know, we all love the guy as a player. We're tired of discussing all the Hall of Fame stuff and the gambling sure. stuff, and so it's great to have uh, even for a short period here a chance to refocus on uh, something else about Pete Rose that's a, lo- a lot more fun to talk about. Yeah, well, and I think that's right. I mean, I think what what we've been having is we've been in a loop. I mean, we've been having the same argument over and over and over again and, he, and and i think the people that are anti pete rose uh the people that are pro pete rose i think everybody's tired of it i mean i think that what, what you sense is anytime you write anything about pete rose these days you're going to get exactly the same responses that that you got two years ago five years ago and ten years ago i mean if you write i think pete rose will be in the hall of fame you're going to get you know all these people writing in saying how can you say that he broke the cardinal rule of baseball if you write hey i think Pete Rose should not be in the hall of fame you're going to hear from all these people hey he's the all-time hit leader and this but to me let's you know i i wanted i i didn't have any agendas with this book i mean i wanted this book to just be nothing but fun i wanted it to be uh, uh hopefully something that people read and takes them back to to a time uh, and a place and and just something that they finish reading and go well, you know what that was really that was really fun um, but if there's something in there that, that I would like people to hold on to, um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit maybe a fuller image of Pete Rose. I mean, maybe something that at least they can say, okay, well, you know what, I'm, maybe I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame, but at least this way I can understand what the big deal was. I can, it, it's not just because he was the all-time hit leader. It's because he was absolutely everything at that time that was good about baseball and was right about baseball. He really represented that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's good that for the first time in a while, we've got someone who's actually writing a more well-rounded uh, account of him. Pete Rose is not my favorite uh, person, not my favorite uh, man, not, not my favorite player, but he was something special in his time. And I think it's good that uh, you were able to sort of round out that image a little bit. Well, thank uh, you. That's certainly what I tried. A couple other things before we let you get out of here. Um, I wanted to ask about, you talked about interesting personalities in the book, and one guy that sort of came across to me, I don't know if I was surprised as much as uh, just well, interested, I guess, is King Griffey. Does, does he come across as uh, bitter or calloused or, or what? I mean, what what did you get from Griffey? Well, and, and it's it's interesting because uh, you know you're, when you when you're trying to when you're trying to tell somebody's story, you have you know you, you have limited you know amounts of time, and 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 if you're writing a, a whole book about King Griffey, you, you you have more more access and more ability to kind of kind of tell a whole story with, sure. with, 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 with Ken, I think, and, and I've heard people say, you know, Hey, he really comes off as bitter. I hope not. I mean, and, and I certainly understand if, if that's the way people see it, but I think it's more human. I mean, I think it's, I think what you have here is you have a guy who really sacrificed for the success of that team uh, in a way that other guys didn't have to. He was the youngest guy on the team. Um, he was the one that Sparky would, would always just kind of, push around, move him up and down the lineup, pinch hit for him in the World Series, tell him not to steal bases. Um, you know, he had to play a role. And, and Ken Griffey is, is a proud guy. I mean, he was a very, very good baseball player. He almost won the batting title in 76. Um, 
you know, he, he could do just so many things. I, I think uh, I've heard him describe as sort of um, his, he's, he's a lot like his son, uh, only without as much power. And I think that's, that's probably right. In a lot of ways, he was much faster than his son and, and could do a lot of things that, you know, and his son is, is one of the great players in baseball history. So I think you're, you're seeing a guy that, that kind of feels like, hey, you know what, I could have been a big star on that team too, and they didn't want it. They didn't want me to. And, and uh, so I think that I can understand where that's coming from. I mean, I think he's very, very proud to be part of that team. I think he was never a problem in any way on that team. Um, but, I, but I also think that he looks back and goes, you know, I don't know if people appreciated me. I don't know if people appreciated how, you know, how good I was and how good I could have been had they given me the chance. And, and so, so I think that's human. I really, I really think that, that uh, he's really one of my favorite people that I interviewed and one, and one of my favorite characters in the book. Yeah, well, he's probably right about uh, being underappreciated in that bunch, and I don't know how you would avoid being underappreciated with uh, the four superstars ahead of him. But, yeah, he uh, you did a good job, though he did may possibly come across as a, a little resentful about it, which, as you say, who wouldn't be? But uh, well, well, you got and, that. And I think, that, I think he is. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's unfair. He, I think he is a little resentful. I mean, he, is, he, he feels like, it, especially – getting pinch hit in the World Series. I think that represented something yeah. to him. He was he was a hero, um, you know, in, in, in game two. Uh, he was uh, a hero in, 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 in later games as well. Uh, he was a big, big, big part of that team, especially in the, in the World Series. And I think he felt like he would have, uh, if he'd come through with a hit when he got pinch hit for, that he might have been the MVP of that series. And I think he feels like um, that, that that's not what they wanted. And, and so – I understand where he's coming from. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. But you you also balance that by showing that he how talented he was because you're right. I think a lot of people still to this day don't really understand how what a good baseball player King Griffey was. Yeah, yeah, he was so. I mean, you know, you, that what's so funny about that team and, and so much fun about him for you know to write about is okay. So take away the big four. I mean, take away Rose and Bench and Morgan and Perez. You know, take away. The, the you know the three guys in the Hall of Fame and the fourth guy who should be or, or could be in the Hall of Fame. Um, think of what you have left. You have George Foster, who was the MVP in '77, and one of the great power hitters of the '70s, uh, and a guy who, if his career had had if he could have maintained it longer, and probably going to New York was a huge mistake for him. Uh, but if he had maintained it longer, he he's, he has a Hall of Fame case. Right. You have Dave Concepcion, one of the great shortstops of certainly of the era. And another guy with a Hall of Fame case, I mean, for, for, for a lot of people, including me, you have Ken Griffey, who almost won the batting title in 76, was a tremendous, tremendous baseball player for, for a long period of time. Um, and then you have uh, Cesar Geronimo, who was, you know, just, he, he was a great, great defensive center fielder and actually hit a little bit uh, for that team in 75 and 76 as well. But, but, you know, one of the most graceful players at the time, I mean, those are your four leftovers. You know, those are the four guys that nobody even talks about. And on another team in the 1970s, those four guys might have been good enough uh, to take you to World Series on their own. I mean, they were that good. So, so that's, I, I think that's what makes that team special, but I also think it's what <clears throat> makes the relationships between those guys so interesting. And the relationship between those guys sort of came through the book in terms of the way you described uh, the way they needed each other in the clubhouse. I, you know, there's a lot of other things I'd like to get into with Gary Nolan's FCS Tooth and Raleigh Eastwick and Will McEnany, but we'll sort of maybe try to close up a little bit by just talking about how much fun it seemed like they were having, just sort of giving each other a hard time, and, and that was a constant theme. 
It really was. I mean, it, and that's something that's, that I didn't know, you know, coming in. I mean, you, you never know exactly how a team responds. But, I mean, it was a huge, huge part of that team was the way they needled each other, the way they uh, uh, mocked each other whenever, you know, when, when somebody – wanted to rest, the rest of the team just came crushing down on them. When a guy had a bad at bat, they just, I mean, they brutalized each other. I mean, they really did, you know, with, with, with what they said, with the gags they pulled on each other. And, and uh, I, I don't know, in, in another clubhouse, that really might not have worked. But in that clubhouse, because you had such strong personalities, um, I think that it really spurred them on. It really drove each other. And, you know, there's a, there's a short period of time, uh, in, the, in May of that year where Sparky said, you know what, that's it, enough. No more of this needling, no more of making fun of each other. You guys are you're, you're, you're scaring the younger players. No more of this. And they stopped doing it, and for six, you know, they, they, they you know, or, or at least tried to stop doing it, and they went on a six-game losing streak. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny to think that, uh, that this was really a big part of who they were. Definitely. Now, one one last question about that uh, team here. You, you mentioned in the book, and you, we talked about a little bit earlier how difficult it is to compare teams. But you said that you believe that that seventy five seventy six Reds were the greatest team in baseball history. Really, uh, even better than the two thousand nine Kansas City Royals. <laughs> well, I, I think every fifth day, Granky makes it really tough for uh, for for that Reds team. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, when, when you know it's so difficult, but I mean, I've actually. Uh, thought a lot about it, and I think that 75 Reds team, 76 Reds, you know, 76 playing off. I mean, I think 75, they, 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 they go through all of the growing pains, all of the pain, all of the losing, all of the fighting, all of that. And then 76 is like clear sailing. They just, right. they just roll through the 76 season. Uh, so I think putting that all together, I think when you're talking about power, speed, defense, uh, one to eight, you know, having no weak spots in your lineup, uh, bullpen, rotation, everything. I, I think uh, if you had a round-robin tournament, I think that team wins it. I, it'd be fun to watch anyway. Um, I'd do it. I'd, 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 I'd get tickets. If oh, I absolutely. Could, you know. Definitely. Now, uh, quickly, I had to mention uh, The Soul of Baseball, uh, the book that you uh, wrote previously to The Machine, uh, A Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America. Now, I'm going to sound like a fanboy here, so I'm going to apologize up front. Um, but this really uh, – to me, this was a, an incredible book. It's not, and it's not just a book for baseball fans. It's a cliche to say that it's, it's, you know, a book about life, but it really is. Um, you know, it's an outstanding look at an American treasure, Buck O'Neill, how he became the man he was, and I guess the lessons that he had for us. Uh, tell us just briefly, if you would, about Buck O'Neill. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, that was that was the first book I wrote. You know, from beginning to end. I mean, I, I have a collection of of columns and and have done some some smaller things, but. Uh, so I really didn't know what's, what's going to be the topic for my first book. And, and I was good friends with Buck. Buck, of course, this great Negro Leagues player, manager, spokesman uh, of the game, was the first African-American coach in the major leagues, was this great scout who signed Lou Brock and Ernie Banks and Lee Smith and Joe Carter and a bunch of other guys. Um, and so I, I was really trying to figure this out, okay, and, and – and, it really just hit me that what I wanted to do in some way was to write about the Negro Leagues through the eyes of Buck O'Neill and, and life through the eyes of Buck O'Neill because he was the most positive person I'd ever been around. He was the most caring, wonderful guy. And, and uh, so I, I asked him about traveling around the country with him. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he was, it was something he, – he was still 
up to his up to almost the day of his death, really. I mean, really, the, other than the last month or two that he spent in the uh, hospital, he spent traveling around the country talking about baseball, talking about the Negro Leagues, talking about America, and talking about things that he had seen. And 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 he was just so optimistic about life and everything. So I traveled around with him for for about a year and a half, and it's it's you know one of the it's certainly the greatest professional experience of my entire life. You know, it's it's uh, I always say that. Writing that book is, you know, there with the, with the, you know, the birth of my two children and my my wedding day. I mean, that's it was just such a special thing, and and it was so personal. You know, it was just a very very personal uh, chance, and and so that book, uh, you know, means means just a lot to me. Nothing will ever mean more to me than than writing that book. And and as it turned out, and I, you know, this was not in any way, shape, or form. I, I absolutely had no idea this was what it was going to be, but. He, you know, he died while the book did. Just when I finished the book, he died um, before the book even came out. And uh, uh, so it became something more. I mean, it really became this this idea, this opportunity to sort of spread the word of Buck O'Neill and 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 share him hopefully with a new generation of people. And and uh, so it's it really it really is something that 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 is close to my heart. I mean, this the machine. I always tell people the machine was just so much fun to do. It was just a tremendously, tremendously fun book. Um, but nothing is going to ever mean more to me than, than writing uh, Soul of Baseball. Yeah, well, you know, I've read every baseball book there, uh, that you can find. I've read them all, just about. And, I, uh, you know, it's my favorite baseball book that I've ever read. I think if you've not okay. seen this yet, people need to go out and, and, and get this book. Uh, we're going to link it up at the site here um, because it really is a lot of fun and, and just, uh, you know, it, it poignant and funny and just very interesting. So, uh. well, thank you. I mean, and that's who he was. You know, I mean, it's that's it's it was also the easiest book in a lot of ways that I'll ever write because it's you know none of the lines are mine. I mean, he he basically he was he was very very funny. I mean, he was a he was a thoughtful, deep thinking, uh, wise guy, wise man. But he was he was hilarious. I mean, he really was, and he was, and and that's part of part of the joy of this thing. I mean, he, he just loved life. He loved baseball. And, and, uh, I, I always said that all I could do in that book was get in the way. I mean, basically my only (laughs) job was to try to get out of the way and let him come through as best I could. And so, so it was really a great thing for me to do. I'll never understand why he's not a no question hall of famer. Yeah. Well, and hall of fame is of course a big part of the, of the close of the book. And, and uh, to this day, I still don't understand it. I mean, it's something that, that baffles me. But as as you probably know, uh, um, there's a statue uh, at the Hall of Fame for him now, and they have a Buck O'Neill Award that they give out every couple of years now that goes to people who represent baseball, you know, the way Buck did. And uh, so, I mean, he's still being honored. And and even though the Hall of Fame thing was a was was a travesty in my mind. Um, it wasn't the Hall of Fame's fault. It wasn't the people at the Hall of Fame. They know what Buck O'Neill means, and, and they have done their best to honor him, and, and I really appreciate that. Certainly. Well, I've taken up way too much of your time. I appreciate you taking some time uh, for, for Red Leg Nation for us to talk about the, the machine. Um, you, you got an event tonight in, in Kansas City, I understand. Now, i got to ask the question that all of America, especially those of us that uh, read your blog really want to know, are you going to wear a Snuggie? You know, I, I'm waiting for the final results. At this point, I think, you know, I, I've got a poll up saying, uh, should I wear the Snuggie? I think right now, yes is up by a thousand votes. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I haven't counted the, the absentee ballots yet. So, um, so I gotta see. I gotta there you see. go. Yeah. Wait till the last minute. 
Don't want to make a call on that one early, certainly. Uh, again, for those of you out there listening, the book is The Machine, the story of this 1975 Reds. If you're not already, go buy The Machine now. Don't wait. Um, it's just a, it's a must read. Then go buy The Soul of Baseball and and be sure to read everything that he write that Joe Posnanski's writing at uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank um, you, thank you. It's been a it's been a it's been a great year. I mean, a crazy year in a lot of ways. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, but check out everything he writes in Sports Illustrated at their website and uh, at the uh, award winning Joe Posnanski blog, Posnansky dot com. We'll link that up too, since I'm mungling bungling the name a little bit here. Um, <laughs> But if you go there, you can discover the joys of Pixie Foods. So we'll let people go discover that. Joe, thanks again. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun for me. Well, good luck with the book and uh, with everything. We're uh, we're very, very enthusiastic about it and uh, certainly appreciate you taking the time for us. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.